All right, it's good to be with you all in this uh, second gathering today after lunch. Everyone's nice and energized after eating, and I'm sure we're all just uh, full of energy. So let's, um, I've tried to keep my notes briefer for taking, into that, consi- taking that into consideration. So we're going to pick up in the confession in par- or chapter 5, paragraph 2 this, mo- uh, this afternoon. So chapter 5 is on divine providence, and we are going to focus on paragraph two this afternoon. If you um, want to read along in the back of your hymnal on page, I just looked it up and I forgot. Is it 673? Yeah, 673 in the back of the hymnal, you can read the, conf- uh, the section of the confession that we're in. So we're chapter five, paragraph two this afternoon. Let's, let's read the confession, and then we'll pray, and we'll turn to a brief lesson on the subject. It says, Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, so that there is not anything befalls any by chance or without his providence, yet by the same providence he ordered them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. So let's pray together and uh, we'll discuss and open up this subject a bit. Let's pray. Father, again, we desire to hear from your word. And we know that we are peering into things that even your word confesses there is mystery. We think of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 and some of the questions that are raised against the doctrine of your sovereignty and your sovereign decree and providence and how ultimately we are led to realize that we are creatures and that we do not understand your divine ways. They are above our thoughts. And so we pray, Father, that you'd give us humility as we seek to uncover as much of mystery as your word reveals We pray that you'd keep us from having arrogant hearts that would think that we can fully comprehend your ways. But we pray that we would understand your word, that we would speak as far as your word speaks, and no further. We pray that you'd be our help. Give us energy. Give us focus for these next uh, several minutes, we pray. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so picking up in paragraph 2 of chapter 5 of the Confession, um, Paragraphs 2 through 4 deal with objections to the doctrine of divine providence. Uh, Usually how it works in the confession is that with each new chapter, paragraph 1 simply states the doctrine, um, doesn't really care to qualify it, and then following paragraphs will then kind of answer some questions that the writers knew would be raised to what was asserted in in the first paragraph. That's what's going on here. Paragraph 1, very straightforwardly, uh, confesses the historic doctrine of divine providence. God upholds, governs, disposes all things, creatures, uh, human beings, angels, great and small, disposes everything to the end of his own glory. And uh, we saw last time that that's very different from the God of deism. God did not create this world and then just kind of step back passively, waiting for it to just kind of unfold on its own. But God continues to be intimately involved in governing the creation that he, he made. 
Now, that naturally raises some questions, though. As I said, paragraphs two through four will answer some of those questions. And the first most natural question that raises is, well, what does that, what does that mean for the creature's actions? And in the case of human, human creatures, what does that mean for our choices? Right? If God decrees and governs all things, doesn't that just kind of make this whole thing a, a big facade? Right? Um, if I can give an analogy that will maybe help us think about this, if you think of a puppeteer, right? A puppeteer is, is a guy or woman who controls a puppet, obviously. Uh, if you think of a puppeteer who holds the strings of a puppet, he's the one who lifts one string, he lowers another, and as a result, the puppet moves, right? But it can't be said that the puppet moves of its own volition, right? Um, the puppet is not moving itself. It's not determining its actions and its choices. Rather, it's simply being moved by the puppeteer. And some think that that's the only logical conclusion if you embrace a doctrine of providence the way the confession teaches it. And um, they think that there's a, a dichotomy here, and you have to pick sides. And they believe that either one, God does indeed cause all of our actions which makes us, they say, into passive, non-volitional participants, like the puppet. Or, on the other hand, they say the other option is that God doesn't cause our actions, we cause our actions, but as a result, we now need to rework how we talk about God's governing the world. But the confession rejects both of those conclusions. And the reason the confession rejects those conclusions is because they are getting their worldview about these things from the Scriptures themselves. Um, they are not, the writers of the confession didn't come to the Bible with philosophy and say, now we're going to fit the Bible uh, into this philosophy. Rather, they came to the Bible and said, let's see what the Bible itself says about how God decrees and ordains and governs man's actions, and at the same time, how man is responsible and is a willing participant. Um, so they're letting Scripture itself inform what we believe about this. Um, and the writers of the confession saw in the Bible that obviously on the one hand you have God who does all that he pleases in this world. We have a God who moves men to accomplish his good purposes. As well as you have creatures who are acting willingly and according to their natures and thus they are being held responsible. And the confession here explains this using the concept of what it calls first and second causes. Okay, so first and second causes. You might remember, if you have a really good memory, back in chapter 3, paragraph 1, the confessions already alluded and used that language. Um, it talked about God being the first cause of all things, but that violence is not offered the uh, will of the creature, and that it doesn't, God's decree doesn't take away the liberty of second causes. Um, here in... Uh, chapter 5, paragraph 2. It states that God is the first cause of all things. Right. So if you've got your confession open, it says, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, 
At the same time, it asserts that the creatures are the second cause. And it says, yet by the same providence, he ordered them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Now, uh, before we home, uh, yeah, home in on that word freely and focus on what this means for um, volitional creatures, I want to comment on uh, the three adverbs that are used here, those words necessarily, freely, and contingently. Um, so the confession says that all things take place uh, because God has decreed them to be. However, God causes all things to happen according to the nature of the second causes involved. Um, sometimes necessarily, sometimes freely, and sometimes contingently. Um, you know what? I'm sorry, guys. Uh, I really was not feeling good at the beginning of this, and I'm, I'm going to be sick, I think. So, uh, you guys mind singing a hymn or something? Yeah, I, I warned Steph. I was like, something's coming on, and it's coming on fast. <laughs> um, let me, I, I might, uh, well, I won't say it for the video. I might be sick here. So, you mind leading us in a hymn, and we'll see if I feel good enough when I, uh, when I return. Sorry. I tried to push through.
And that's what the confession is talking about here. So, for instance, 1 Kings 22, uh, King Ahab. King Ahab, they go out to war against the Syrians. Ahab thinks that he'll be wise and smart and he'll hide himself. And so he dresses up in a way that no one would, no one would recognize him in the battle. That way no one would take him out. Well, one of the archers of the Syrian army, what does he do? He just randomly, at least according to his intention, aims his bow into the sky, fires an arrow off into the battle. He's just kind of lobbing an arrow. And it strikes Ahab through a chink in the armor and kills the king. And it says that this was brought about by God's doing. So, did that archer have the intention of killing the king? No. He just randomly, as far as he's concerned, shot an arrow. Um, we would say he accidentally but, from the perspective of the decree of God, this is what the confession is saying, even those contingent events that appear to us to be chance, random, very unlikely, whatever, even those are ordained and decreed by God and governed by God to accomplish exactly what he wants accomplished. So, the archer didn't intend to kill Ahab, but that was exactly the eternal purpose of the Lord, was to bring judgment on his people by killing Ahab. Um, so that's what it means by contingently. Now, let's focus on that word freely. Okay? God first cause causes all things without contingency to come about, yet he causes them to happen according to the nature of second causes. And with reference to volitional creatures like men and angels, it says he causes these second causes, um, causes these things to fall out, sorry, in the case of his volitional creatures. So, take the example of the puppeteer. The biblical picture is very different from the puppeteer who's just controlling a otherwise helpless puppet who's not involved and just being moved about. Rather, the biblical picture is that, yes, God absolutely decrees with certainty what his creatures will do, but that those creatures also do what they do willingly. So they don't do it against their will. They're not just moved by another. They're not coerced. But rather, they do what they desire to do in fulfillment of the divine decree. Um, notice it doesn't say that God is the first cause and the creature is the first effect. That would be the case in a puppet example, right? The puppet in that example is not actually a cause of anything. Rather, he is being caused. But the confession confirms this idea that in the one and the same action, you have the primary cause, God, and the secondary cause, the creature. So both are actually active. Um, and when they say freely, um, what they're trying to emphasize is that the creature is not acting under compulsion, but rather he's acting in accordance with the desires of so back in paragraph, no, sorry, back in chapter 3, paragraph 1, it says that violence is not offered to the will of the creature. So God's sovereign decree doesn't offer violence to our uh, volition and our choice of what we desire to do. Um, <coughs> this will be discussed at more length in chapter 9 on free will, but obviously it was natural for the confession to deal with it. 
There we go. How's that? Okay. Has it been off this whole time? Okay. So let's, let's turn our attention now. I want to go to three passages of Scripture. And just so you can see that what the confession has summarized here is a tension that we see in the Scriptures themselves. Okay. Um, so first of all, Mark 13, or no, sorry, Mark 9, verse 13. Turn to Mark 9, verse 13. <coughs> so Mark 9, 13. Jesus here is speaking of John the Baptist. John the Baptist has already been uh, put into prison. He's been... Uh, beheaded by this point. And Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished as it is written of him. Now, if you're familiar with this passage, you know that John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He's not actually Elijah. But Jesus often referred to him as Elijah who was to come. Because John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Um, And Jesus says, Elijah has come, talking about John the Baptist, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Now, that word wished is literally the word willed. They did to him whatever they willed to do or desired to do. So, you think about what happened to John and who, who committed these things towards John. The religious leaders of Israel challenged and mocked John. Uh, Herod is the one who imprisoned John for speaking against his unlawful marriage. Um, Herod's wife's daughter is the one who demanded John the Baptist's head be put on a platter and, and brought to her. But Jesus says all of those things, whether it's the religious leaders, Herod, Herod's daughter, or stepdaughter, Jesus says all of them, they did what they willed. To John, did what they desired to do. In other words, they weren't coerced against their desires. If you were to interview Herod or his stepdaughter, none of them would say to us, yeah, you know, it's weird. We all love John the Baptist. We wanted no harm to happen to him. And all of a sudden, we were just overcome by this strange force. And we started doing all these things against what we actually wanted to do. No one, none of them would say that. They would, if they were being honest, say, we did to John as we desired. We hated John. Uh, My dad hated John, you know, Herod, because he spoke against his marriage. I hated him for different reasons. If they were honest, that's what they would say. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. What they did to John, they did freely. And yet, notice Jesus also says, as it is written of him. So, obviously, when Jesus says that, he means written by God, written in the Scriptures. What happened to John was prophesied to happen, you know, hundreds of years before. And if God says something is going to happen, is there any chance it's not going to happen? No. There's a, there's a certain type of necessity. Once God says something will be, it will be. Because God can't lie. So within the framework of a God who says this will happen, and in that sense, you know, his decree 
is an eternal decree of all that will happen. And yet within that, you have creatures freely, uncoerced, fulfilling what God said must be, if that makes sense. Um, So that's one example of you have God the first cause. This is what's going to happen to John the Baptist. But he causes those things to come about by the means of second causes, which in the case of these humans involved, they did it freely, they did it volitionally of their own accord. Now, obviously, God's intention and human intentions are often very different. Um, God's intention for John the Baptist was not, he didn't mean evil towards John, while Herod and the others did mean evil. Um, A second example, Isaiah 10. If you want to turn there, Isaiah chapter 10. And I apologize, guys, if I'm butchering this. My mind is kind of all over the place now. Um, but hopefully we can, if nothing else is clear in, question, in Q&A, maybe we can clarify some things. Um, Isaiah 10. This is, a, this is a prophecy that God is giving through the prophet Isaiah about how he's going to judge his own people, Israel, through another nation, the Assyrians, by bringing the Assyrians to invade and plunder Israel. Okay? So jump in at verse 5 of Isaiah 10. No. Oh. There we go. Siri thought I was talking to her. Um, man, we've got all the distractions this afternoon. <laughs> um, yeah, verse 5. Verse 5 of Isaiah 10. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. This is God talking. So he's saying that Assyria is the rod of punishment that God is going to use against his own people, Israel, to humble Israel for her sins. And the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. So that's what Assyria is going to do. That's what God is going to have Assyria do. But then notice verse 7. Yet he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so. Okay, so Assyria's king is not thinking or intending, you know, I'm, I'm going to make myself Yahweh's instrument of chastisement for his people to make his people more holy. That's not what the king is thinking. Okay? But rather, going on in verse 7, but it is, it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off not a few nations. So, God is going to use Assyria to judge his own people The Assyrians attack Israel out of their own pride and their being bloodthirsty. And then jump down to verse 12. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all His work on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So when God is done humbling His own people, notice that God, the Lord will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent. 
Also, I have removed the boundaries of the people and have robbed their treasuries. So I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. And then God asked this question. Shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? Or shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it? As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up, or as if a staff could lift up, as if it were not wood. So, God is saying to the king of Assyria here, you think that you've done this because of your own strength, your own wisdom. But he's saying, you are no more than an axe in my hand that I am wielding for my purposes. Okay? And he's saying to the king, you're an instrument. You're like a saw or some other tool which the Lord is using for his purpose. And get this. Such is the evil intention that's in the heart of the king of Assyria and in the heart of his people that God tells the king, after I'm done using you to punish and humble my people, I'm going to then turn around and judge the very nation I used to judge my people. He says, I'm going to punish the king of Assyria for his haughty heart, his arrogance. So, (coughs) excuse me. Isaiah 10 is one of those passages that kind of brings many of these threads together. Um, For instance, some takeaways. Number one, who caused the Assyrians to attack Israel? Okay, That's a question. Who, Who caused the Assyrians to attack Israel? The answer is both God and the Assyrians, right? God wielded the Assyrians like a tool he says, like an axe in his hand. But also the Assyrians were the second cause, right? Um, The king's arrogance and his covetousness and whatever else led him to desire to invade Israel. And so it's not an either or. It's not that, well, either God, you know, decrees it or humans freely do it. It's both. God decrees it and his creatures participate in a way that is free and without coercion. Um, Second takeaway, whose purpose in this event is ultimately fulfilled? The answer is God's purpose, right? My purpose shall stand. I will do all my good pleasure, God says. Um, The king of Assyria thought he was in control, right? Because of my wisdom, I've done this, and I'm going to do this and that. And God says, no, this is actually how it's going to play out. And this is what's going to happen. And so God's purpose prevails. But thirdly, the third takeaway, notice how God holds the Assyrians accountable and even considers them blameworthy for their actions. Right? So the Assyrians couldn't say, hey, you know, Lord, it's not fair for you to judge us for what we did because you, you used us to judge and humble your own people. That was your doing, Lord, not ours. They couldn't say that. Rather, they knew their own guilt, and God therefore holds them accountable and blameworthy because they did it freely according to the desires of their heart. Um, One more example. I'm just going to summarize this, um, and then we can can turn to questions and answers. Um, (coughs) I wanted to open this up in more detail, but uh, the hardening of... Pharaoh's heart. That's an important example because it specifically deals with the issue of sin in the human heart 
and God's relation to that sin, right? Um, So, for instance, God says to Moses, Exodus 4.21, before Moses has even gone back to Egypt, God tells Moses, go back to Egypt. You're going to tell Pharaoh that I said, let my people go. But before Moses even gets back there, God tells Moses, but I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. And so you have God giving a command to Pharaoh, let my people go. That's the revealed will of God. That's what Pharaoh should have done, should have listened to the voice of God. But God says, I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. So whatever is going on there, clearly God is claiming some responsibility for the fact that Pharaoh will not obey God's command. And Pharaoh will not obey because God will harden uh, Pharaoh's heart. Now, the reason this is a fascinating example is obviously because you've got God on the one hand commanding something, but then saying, I'm not going to grant Pharaoh to be able to do it. Right? And some people will hear that and they'll think to themselves, you know, poor Pharaoh. God is telling him what he ought to do. And Pharaoh, you know, Pharaoh just had such a good heart. He would have done it. He wanted to obey the Lord's command. But poor Pharaoh, because God came and hardened his heart, Pharaoh had to do something, you know, other than what he desired. Um, That's not what's going on here. Okay? The hardening of Pharaoh's heart is not a case of Pharaoh wanting to do what God commanded and God kind of with a secret hidden force making Pharaoh not able to to carry it out. Um, This is one example where the blame of Pharaoh's sin is never laid at God's feet. But rather, the Scriptures attribute all blame to Pharaoh for his sin. Um, They attribute hardening to God that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, but they never attribute sin to God. They don't say that the Lord sinned. Rather, Pharaoh sinned. Um, And one important thing that that I'll just note is that at least three times in the Exodus account, it is said that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Okay, so God hardens his heart as well as Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And that's significant um, because what that means is that God's way in which he hardens people's hearts is not inconsistent to them also being active in hardening their own hearts. Okay? Um, And the the way that we should think about this, I'm just going to summarize so we can... I'm not really being all that clear, and I can tell, so I'm just going to try to summarize. Um, When we think of uh, Pharaoh or anyone else hardening their own heart and God hardening their heart, we shouldn't think of it in the sense of Pharaoh is neutral and God now works sin within their hearts so that they do something bad. But rather, we should think of it as Pharaoh is already a fallen individual And what God does to incite sinners to sin further, He doesn't have to infuse more sin into them. All He needs to do is remove the presence of His existing graces and His His restraints. Right? So, 
for God to actively harden Pharaoh, he doesn't have to make Pharaoh more sinful, uh, but rather he simply has to remove those kinds of um, restraints that in common grace God places on sinners all the time. I mean, we don't give God enough credit for that, but God is always keeping sinners back from committing worse sins than they, uh, than they do. And uh, so I'm, I'm going to lose my train of thought. Sorry. I'm, I tried to push through and it's not going well. I should have just called it. So I'll call it here, guys. Let's, let's just talk about this instead of me getting all confused with my notes and sweating up here profusely. Anyone have any questions? Or uh, I mean, nothing was clear, so I assume you have nothing but questions, probably. talking, I was actually thinking of the shorter catechism and how it says God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and their actions. And I think it's pretty straightforward without going into the other five that come after what we're speaking about here on uh, one and two within chapter five. Yes, yeah, yeah. So I was just, it's just a comment, but I was reminded of yeah, good. that as yeah. you were talking about it. Yeah, the shorter, the shorter catechism is tough. Uh, so you can read through the first yeah. three and your, your brain's just all over the place and that shorter catechism will just yeah. Yeah. sum it up. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Yeah, uh, thank you for that. That's yeah, I appreciate the comment, Adrian. Anyone else? Comments? Dave, David's got something. He's laughing back there. It's going to take at least 30 minutes for me to lay it out. Okay. <laughs> Samuel. Ken's going to scare you with the microphone. So my note I was making was, oh, well, the question was going to be, what is the uh, mechanism by which God hardened the Pharaoh's heart or the process by which he did it without authoring the sin? Yeah. And you answered the question immediately after. But sure. so is the most common way that he does that is by removing grace or his present from from anybody yeah. um, to just cause them to do what they were predisposed to do naturally, which accomplishes his will without making him guilty of authoring the sin. Yeah, so um, I'm trying to remember. Is it Abraham um, when he gives Sarah to Abimelech? Is that right? Um and she gets put into his harem, right? And um, in God's providence, the, the king doesn't touch Sarah. You know, Abraham was scared, lied, said, no, nah, she's my sister, you know. And 
it's told God comes to him in a dream, the king, and threatens him, like, what have you done? And he's like, hey, I didn't know I did this in the ignorance of my heart. And God takes credit. He says, it was I who kept you from touching her, right? So that's what I was getting at in terms of, like, Abimelech was a pagan unbeliever, and yet his sin could have been worse than it was. Could have been worse that he could have laid his hands on Sarah, right? But he didn't because God restrained his hand. Um, and so that's just a window that we get into how God, often in common grace, is, is constantly restraining sin. So God restrains sin by means of conscience, right? It personal, personally speaking, our own conscience will keep back our feet from certain treacherous paths, Civil authorities is also a means God uses, but there's all sorts of ways that God curbs what could be worse sin in, in, in a sinner's life. And so, yeah, I think, and I hope I'm answering the question, but yeah, when we think about God hardening sinners, which he does, we shouldn't think of it, though, as though God has to positively author or create sin within their hearts, because that do, I do think that that would make God the author of sin, Right? So you kind of have a, uh, um, I'm trying to remember the term that uh, would be used like theologically, um, incongruity, I think is the word that's used. So when we think about God's grace in the elect, in his people, versus God's hardening of the non-elect, you don't have a one-to-one, like just as God actively creates graces within the hearts of his people, so he's actively creating sin in the hearts of the reprobate. But rather, you have God actively, absolutely creating graces in the hearts of his people, sanctifying them. God is very much active in creating good things. But when it comes to the wickedness of the wicked, all God has to do is restrain, or um, draw back and pull back his restraining graces and basically release that person, if you will, to his own desires, his own his own heart, right? I mean, that's one of the worst judgments God can give a person is to give him over to the desires of his heart. Does that answer what you were asking? We just seen that last week in 1 Samuel 4, you know, regarding their worship of the ark and his removal of his glory and his providence and what happened to the Israelites and the Philistines reign over them and his providence, the secondary cause of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. Anyone else? Any questions? Comments? Guys, thank you for being patient. I apologize. I probably should have just said I'm not feeling good. We should postpone, but um, it is what it is. I made the choice I made, so <laughs> hopefully next time it uh, I won't be feeling so. Uh, so... Not not great, but anyway, any any last comments or anything? All right, let me. We already sang our closing hymn, so let me just pray for us, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we pray that you would teach us from your word. We thank you that your word uh, is a light to our feet. It is a path that guides us so that we actually know about these things. Lord, your providence would be an utter mystery to us if we didn't have the lens of the scriptures. 
And though there is still much that is mysterious to us, yet your word is clear on these things. We, we know that while creatures are responsible for our actions, while we are responsible for our sins, uh, yet we know that all things work together according to your eternal purpose to glorify yourself, that there is nothing that befalls us uh, by chance. There is nothing that happens in this world by chance. Father, we pray that you'd give us humility as a church as we wrestle through those things. These are complicated things that need to be nuanced. And uh, we pray that you would help us and guide us and make us more better equipped in your word. That we would be more useful as we engage with others who are outside the faith. That we would um, have answers to objections and questions. That we would... uh, Be able to refute those who would speak against the truth of your word. Father, be with us the rest of this Lord's Day. We thank you for your mercies to us. Thank you for your sustaining grace. Pray that you would be with us this week. Sanctify us. Give us hearts. As we wake up tomorrow morning, we know that we can so often feel very different on Monday morning than we do on Sunday afternoon. We pray, be gracious to us tomorrow as we go to our work to our uh, roles in our family, whatever sphere you have us. Help us to keep the things of eternity and spiritual things upon our minds. Help us to faithfully serve you. Pray that you'd be gracious to us, that we would look to your spirit for help every moment, that we would not arrogantly walk in our own strength. We know that we are soon to fall when we do that. Help us to be humble. Bless your people, we pray. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.